Aren't you glad? He reached way down for you. You know, if you're here and you don't know him, if you call on him, he will reach down for you too today. It's not too late for the Savior to reach down for you. Well, welcome. Good morning. I'm glad to see you all here. I have a, a quick announcement that our emeritus pastor wanted me to make on his behalf. He, there's going to be a surprise a guest appearance next week. And uh, our emeritus pastor, Dr. Philip Howard, will be preaching next Sunday. And when I, I, I was kidding with him, I said, so um, when I tell people this, is this supposed to keep people away or bring them back? And uh, he, of course he punched me. No, um, in love. On June 16, 1858, at the Republican Convention in Springfield, Illinois, a senatorial candidate who was concerned about the great divide that was being created in America from this issue of slavery gave a speech as he was running for Senate. And in the first paragraph of that speech contained this quote, a house divided against itself cannot stand. That was Abraham Lincoln. Now, as we know, Lincoln's words were actually not his own. Uh, they were first spoken by our Lord and recorded in Matthew chapter 12, uh, verse 25. And Jesus said these words, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. Not may not stand, or might likely not stand, will not stand. Well, today it's clear that we are a people divided. In fact, more and more we seem to be a people who seem to try to identify and celebrate new and more and more differences between ourselves than things that bind us together and we hold in common. This nation first founded and was known as the melting pot seems to have melted. And now in our country, pick a party, pick a politic, and there are divisions not only between the parties, but within the parties. There's divisions in our homes. Are there not? I mean, there's... Divorce has broken apart and created pain in so many homes in America. And I understand some of that pain myself because those that know my story know I went through that. It's terrible. Most people that have not gone, gone through it may not even understand. But it divides. There's a divided house. Um, but you know what? There's... Uh, other things that divide us. In fact, we're creating new and more things as if COVID itself and all the painful consequences of isolation and even death were not enough. Now we're going to take sides on masks, no masks, vaccinations, no vaccinations. Do you see the battle lines being drawn in America? It's dividing us. Um, what about church. Can there be divisions even in church? 
I mean, there's a growing number of church splits, growing number of denominations, and the church has become a house divided itself. And a house divided will be weaker and weaker until it fails. See, we Christians have not been granted immunity from this dangerous destroyer of nations, of communities, of churches, of families. Do any of you feel the effects of living in a divided world? I do. I do. This world's divided. But Jesus, in our passage today, has given us something that is able to bring us together and make us one regardless of any of the things I've spoken about. Regardless of any force, it is more powerful and can hold us together in spite of all these differences. And Jesus tells us when we live that way, we have a powerful influence on our world. So turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to chapter 17 of the book of John. We're going to begin reading at verse 20. Now, just follow along with me, if you would. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, the disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, you in me, so that, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you and these have known that you have sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. So today will be our last message in our series titled The Greatest Prayer Ever Offered. And if you remember last week, if you had the uh, opportunity to be with us, Pastor Matthew spoke to us and, and among other things, he talked about us, the need for us to be on mission for the gospel of Jesus Christ and that Jesus prayed that we need not be afraid of the evil one and he prayed that we would be kept and you know we will be kept as we have this mission we, re we just sang about it he will hold me fast I mean we don't use the word tie that fast son I, I don't think I use fast very much but fast just means securely permanently he will hold me securely and permanently. And this is what he's saying and this is what he's praying. But today we're going to go through the last part of Jesus' high priestly prayer. And he addresses several things. Uh, he addresses who he's praying for. He addresses the unity that he prays that we will have. He prays, he tells us what the impact of that unity will be. 
And then he also tells us the basis on which he's making this appeal. Although today my primary focus is going to be on the unity that Jesus has prayed for on our behalf, um, I think it's worth a, a few minutes, and so I'm going to take like a three-minute, 30,000 flight, uh, foot flight over the top of this passage as a whole because there are some key nuggets in here that I hope that it will maybe spark some interest in you that you might want to take a look at them later. But let's just go through that quickly. In verse 20, we learn who Jesus was praying for. Now, Jesus was not just praying for his disciples, but it says here he was praying for everyone who would ever put faith in Jesus Christ through the word of the apostles that we now hold. And the word of the apostles was recorded for us right here. And anyone who's put faith in Christ based on what the Bible tells us is part of Jesus' prayer. He had your name and my name in mind as he prayed this. In fact, even people that you have not yet talked to and spoken with that will put faith in Christ are included in this prayer. So this prayer still rolls. This prayer is still rolling on. And he had your name and my name right in his mind. In fact, he didn't have to just know it because he's omniscient. Do you know that according to Revelation 13.8, there's a book that exists and in that book are recorded every name of everyone who will ever put faith in Jesus Christ. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And do you know when that was written? It, it, it gets filled out as you put faith in Christ, right? No way. According to that verse, it was written before the foundations of the world. He knows his own. And he's praying with your name specifically, not with just, oh, I hope somebody puts faith in me. No, he knows you in advance. And he's already prayed for you. It's almost like if you're a kid and you're, you're trying to go to sleep and you hear this noise in the background, you realize it's a voice of your parent in another room and you might be listening to it through the heater duct or you might actually hear it through a crack in your door. But as they're talking, you hear that they're praying and they're praying and your name comes up. They're praying for you. We, not, we need to peek into this scene and know that we're watching Jesus pray for you and me. He's, our name has just come up to the Father. So let's just watch with kind of anticipation that what would Jesus pray for us? In verses 21 to 23, we're going to be covering that more in depth, but that's just on the unity that he's praying for us. Whatever is it and what's it for and what will accomplish. In verse 24, he comes back to the uh, topic that he covered and actually in John 14, 3, when he said, I go to prepare a place for you. Do you remember that? That where I am, you might be also. He's telling him again, Father, I desire that they come and be with me. Do you know that this is not actually a prayer request? This is just a statement of will. This is his heart's expression. He's saying, Father, I, my heart, my desire is I love the people you gave me and I can hardly wait till we get together. Do you know that Jesus is waiting for you? I mean, you, not for us. Yes, he's waiting for us, but he's knowing when you're arriving. And when he, according to Jude, it says that he's going to receive us with great joy. You know what that means? When you show up, he's going to go, Father, Father, guess what? Bill is here. He knows your name. He's waiting for you. And he's just telling you out of love, he can hardly wait to see us. And he wants us to see his glory. The glory he stripped off of himself to come to earth. He's put it back on, folks. He's sitting on a throne of glory right now and he can hardly wait to show off in front of his brothers and sisters. 
I can hardly wait. In verse 25 and 26, Jesus addresses his heavenly father as righteous father. This is the only place in scripture that I know that he does this. And he says righteous, and righteous here is the same word in John, 1 John 1, 9, when it says God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Just and righteous are the same Greek word. What does that mean here? Jesus is appealing on God's justice and righteousness to answer these prayers. Why? Because, Father, my atoning death has now paid the full price that you can treat these people not just out of mercy or just out of kindness, but out of your justice. They're forgiven. And so this is the thing that actually binds every Christian together throughout all of history. It's the one thing, the only thing that gives us acceptance before God. And that is the penalty of God, do me, do you, because of our sin, has been fully paid by Christ's death on a cross. And now we can be forgiven and accepted and loved and welcomed, not on basis of kindness, but because the penalty of our sins has been fully satisfied, God's justice is fully satisfied, and he can welcome you with open arms. That's what he's saying right here. Righteous Father means, hey, we don't have to do this on any other basis but your righteousness, your justice. It's been satisfied. And for Jesus, he hasn't even been to the cross yet, but he sees it as a done deal. It's a done deal for you, and it's a done deal for me. Well, I would encourage you to kind of look at some of these truths. They're awesome. But let's just focus on what the message is this morning on our unity. In verses 21 to 23, Jesus makes it very clear that it is his priority for the church, our church, Valley Bible Church, that unity is a top priority. And so today we're going to be covering, well, what is the meaning of unity? Second, what's the model for this unity? What's it supposed to look like? And three, what's the manifestation of this unity? What's it supposed to accomplish? What's it supposed to achieve? Let's just dive in. The meaning of our unity. So when, the, when Jesus asked the Father to make us one, to give us perfect unity, what was he really even asking for? Well, unity is one of those murky words, kind of like love. If it, everybody seems to think they know what it means, but nobody can define it. Um, but let's begin, hopefully, with a common understanding that we can use today. Um, unity is simply, in general, no matter where you are, is the living and working with others in the condition of oneness and in harmony, being united in heart, in mind, in purpose. So the quality of being united and functioning as one thing. Well, you do know we are the body of Christ and not the bodies of Christ, Right? We are one with another in the body of Christ. And any church that exists on this planet or has ever existed preaching and proclaiming this gospel that it's Jesus alone that saves is part of that body. Did you know that? They might be murky on a lot of other things. They, they might think they have to dip you underwater upside down. I don't care. If they believe the only way to heaven is through the death and resurrection and belief in Jesus Christ, that's all that matters. We're one body. We're the ones that divided ourselves up into 7,400 flavors. <laughs> Jesus didn't do that. We did that. Well, let's jump in. See, unity is not a solo sport. Did you know that? 
You can say, I have unity. With who? With what? Unity is not achieved alone. Unity is only expressed and found in how you relate to others. And in Christian unity, there's a condition that exists when believers will function in harmony, united in heart and mind, and one purpose, based and solely based on being found in Jesus Christ and on the Word of God. That is our central rallying point. It's not how we think. It's not what we look like. It's not what our political beliefs are. It's none of those things. It's only a Christian unity is founded only and solely on our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's it. It's, we also, you know, what you have to say is that there are some essentials here, and we're going to cover that in a minute. But it's not based on personal opinion. It's not based on the flavor of the week. It's not based on your favorite podcast. Man, I'm so tired of podcasts. All I know is people that listen to podcasts sure are angry. I don't get it. But anyway, can there be differences of opinion even in the church between Bible-believing Christians? You betcha. Um, But there are some true essentials that every Christian must believe. Every Christian. How about grace alone, right? Faith alone, Christ alone. Scripture, if you look at this, my, my uncompromising position is this is the word of God. This is inerrant. This is infallible. This is trustworthy. I believe it. It's not compromisable. I won't. How about Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. Is that compromisable? No. There are some things. Now, if they want to talk about spiritual gifts, end time eschatology, uh, talking in tongues, uh, pick some things, baptism, those are not things that are essential, are they? They don't relate to how I become a Christian and know God and have salvation in Jesus Christ. We can, de- we can debate those things. In fact, people throughout our Christian world actually do debate these things. But they cannot let it divide us. It should not divide us. We need to be agreed on essentials. So there was a quote that was attributed to a, a, a German Lutheran uh, named, something you'd want to name your kids, Rupertus Meldinius. Oh, Rupertus, please come to the table. No, I don't know. Rupert, anyway, what he said was regarding Christian biblical disagreements. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In everything, charity and love. Do you see it? Will there be non-essentials that we, none of us may have full agreement on? Sure. And they might even be Christian things. They might even be things that you think you read your Bible one way and another person reads his Bible the other way. But the essentials, we must have unity. We must be agreed. That's the only thing that binds us together. What do you think brings all this various, I I call them odd, odd people together, me too, I'm odd. What, What would bring us all together other than Jesus? Is there anything that you can think of would a sports team bring these people together? No. Um political party. No. This is the work of God through the Spirit of God. 
Right? This is, this is what we're watching. And this is precious. So we have diversity. And unity is not uniformity. It's not groupthink. You hearing me? We don't have to agree on non-essentials. It's not sameness. We're not robots. It doesn't mean we all have to be the same, think the same, root for the same sports team, like the same political party, feel the same way about COVID vaccinations. Those things are not even important in the scheme of our unity. They don't even bubble to the surface. Why? Because there's a priority here, and it's about Christ and Christ alone. Right? We... We're, we're in deep trouble. We're in deep trouble if any of these other things percolate into our life here in the church and divide us. In fact, we're in sin if that happens. Well, let's keep going. We need to know that in the church we must act, live, love, work, and be together in a way that demonstrates the actual reality that what unites us in Christ is infinitely greater, infinitely more powerful, infinitely more important than anything you can pick that might divide us. Are you getting it? That means race, gender, ethnicity, nationality, money, education, power, position, politics, musical taste, sports teams, COVID, hobbies, pick one. None of them are even in the same ballpark as our faith in Christ. None. So we need to say that none of these things will stand against our unity in Christ. They don't matter. Well, one of the things too is that we are part of the same body. According to Hebrews 2.11, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Do you know if you are in Jesus, you are my brother or my sister. And I bet, I can almost guarantee that we are closer than most of my blood relations that are not in Jesus. I don't have the same bond with them. They always said blood is thicker than water, but the spirit is thicker than blood. You get it? We are of the spirit of God. And there's nothing that can divide that. No earthly thing has a chance. Well, but it's also critically important for us just to grasp real quickly. Why is this so important? Of all the things, as Jesus closes out his prayer, this is the last thing he prays for before he goes to the cross. He's done with his disciples. He's closing the book. And he has one, there's only one prayer, by the way. There's only one real prayer request in our passage today for what he prayed for all of us believers. There's only one. And did he pray for power? Did he pray for uh, faith, for encouragement, for freedom from persecution, from bold, for boldness, uh, for effectiveness? He prayed for none of those. He prayed for one thing, our oneness and unity. That was what's on his heart. He said, what this people needs more than anything I could ask the Father for, and its highest priority is their unity. Do you think it's important? Are you protecting it? The point is, Jesus said, this is the most important thing in all the world that I could have prayed for you. Do you think I knew all the things you might need throughout the ages? Do you, do you think Jesus knew what we needed? What we need right now? What did he pray for? 
He prayed for our unity. So now, I have to ask, and we must move on, but it's important to him. Is it important to us? Because if we're not careful with it, we're going to be like that two-year-old child that gets something very precious put in our hands, and we're going to destroy it. I don't want to see that for us. The model of our unity. Well, clearly, there's something here that we can see is what is our unity supposed to be modeled after, patterned after? And let's just look. It says in verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just like most marriage couples are one. I hope not. I hope we're better than that. As good as my marriage is, I hope we're better than that. You understand me? This is not the model. The model is what? That we are one, the Father and the Son. There's no greater relationship in all the universe than the Father and the Son. It's never had a falling out. It's never had a disagreement. It's never had a fight. It's never needed to ask forgiveness. It's, this is the best and highest and purest relationship in the world. And Jesus says, I want you to pattern your relationship with me and with one another after that one. Could you set the bar a little lower for me? You know, I might be able to achieve this if you said make it like Fred. But like you and the Father? How is that possible? Well, I think there's a couple ways that we can practically kind of get our hands around it because who knows and who can explain the wonder of the Trinity? I mean, I, I think about that and I said, I'm not even going to try. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm like Charlie Brown when he was looking at the clouds and says, I see a ducky and a horsey. I, when I look at the God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and said, explain that unity. Don't know. But there's some elements we can take out of their unity that we can apply. And here's the first one. The first one, I think, is going to be a union or oneness out of a heart of love. You see, can you imagine, and we can only imagine, the delight and the enjoyment and the infinite love that's shared between the Son and the Father? There's nothing to ever mar it. There's nothing to ever interrupt it. It's endless. It's unending. It's perfect. Now, when he says, be like them, don't lose heart. He's not saying you've got to be perfect. You've you, you got to be flawless. But we should be saying, well, what's the direction we should be aiming? How should my love to you guys look? Well, if he says, my love is supposed to be like the Father's and the Son's love, that is a love that never ends. So does my love end for you when you tick me off? Is that, is that what happens? Well, if you, if you cross me, my love for you is over. Is that what the, would I be modeling my love after the Father and the Son's love? No way. How about, is, how about is there a, a sense of, is it a deep love? A lot of us say, I love you, but I don't remember your name. And uh, be warm, be fed, be filled, I love you. What did they need? I mean, we, we're not necessarily engaged in people when we say we love them. And it's a shame. Because to truly love them is to love them deeply. That's what it says. Love your brother deeply from the heart. That's a high bar. But that's the model we're supposed to be following. So when we compare ourselves to this and say, well, what should I be doing to make 
this oneness a reality. I should be aiming and using the template of Jesus and the Father. Now, Jesus never told me to get along with you. Did you know that? Look what he said. In verse 21, he says this. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, I in you, right? That they may be in us. Here's the secret. When I am in Jesus, and you are in Jesus, then we have fellowship. Do you get it? When we are us in them, that's what makes this work. He didn't say get along with one another and just try to put up. No, he says get in me and the closer you are to me, the closer you are to them. Now, marriage counseling used to go this way. There there was a a, a triangle put on 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 a piece of paper and they put one spouse on one corner and the other spouse on the other corner and they put God at the top. Do you remember seeing this? It says when both partners make their goal to be like God and to be closer to God, guess what happens to them? They get closer and closer and closer. They don't try to aim for each other. Aim for God. That's what we should do. We shouldn't be aiming for each other first. Aim for Jesus first. Because if you, I guarantee if you are in Jesus, like I'm supposed to be in Jesus, we will get along. We will get along. We will be unified. Because you'll want what I want. You'll love what I love. Because we love a common Savior. Now the second thing we can be like him is really in our wills. There's a union of oneness and of will of the Father and Son. See, they're two persons with different roles, but they've never differed in opinion. They've never differed in what they have wanted. They never differed in what their goals were. They've aligned their wills. And according to uh, John 5.30, Jesus says, I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. See, Jesus could not and would not act apart from his Father's will. This is what we need to do first to be in line with Jesus' will. When I am in line with Jesus' will, I now am able to say through the power of the Spirit, not my will, but thine be done. Just like Jesus. This is what we're called to do. Now, guess what? If I'm aligning my will with Jesus, and you're aligning your will with Jesus, we don't even have to aim for each other. We're going to be aligned on what's supposed to happen. You get it? We have to align our wills with Jesus' will, and we will then align our own wills. It's not about opinion, about what I want. My way or the highway. None of those things work. It's when I can say, this is what God wants us to do in this ministry, in our life. And we both pursue it with vigor. We are going to get closer and closer and closer together. Because we're both headed to the same place. Now, here's the thing. When life gets hard... Um, what happens Um, I just think I can't display love to my brothers and sisters if I'm not pursuing love for Jesus I, I, I will not be able to unite my will with yours if my will is not united with Jesus's it just will not happen but so Jesus has prayed for our oneness and our model our template and our power source because again when Jesus calls us to love one another and he commanded it right in uh, was it John 13 love one another as I have loved you okay does he ever command something he knows you can't do 
right? That means he has empowered you to do this command. Through the Holy Spirit's power and through our united life with Jesus, we now can obey the command and love one another, just like he's loved us. Wow, how do I get that power? I have no idea, but it's through the power of the Spirit. It's not something I manufactured, not something I created, it's something I was given. We need to exhibit that once with another. You can't, you can't say, well, they're too hard to love. There's nobody too hard to love in the power of Jesus. Nobody. If God loves them, can you love them? Oh, your standards are higher, I see. Yeah, God can love them, but yeah, no, he doesn't know what I know. Well, let's move on. Anyway, um, because you have to understand, I, I want to say this. If we do not pursue this unity that God has given us, we've already heard Jesus' words. A house divided will not stand. If we want to be a church that stands the test of time and is here to reach a world, we cannot be divided. Well, the last one is the manifestation of our unity. Has anybody ever got a valuable gift that was just precious? Maybe it was a musical instrument. Maybe it was a figurine that was porcelain and ex exquisite. How long would that last in the hands of a, maybe an active two-year-old? Not long? Yes. Okay, but you might make that item last for a lifetime. What's the difference? The item or the carer? Again, Jesus has given something precious what are we doing with it? Well, let's go on here because Jesus said that there's going to be an effect for our unity. It's not just something he wants us to do because, you know, you've got to be nice to one another. That's my command. Be nice to one another because that's all that matters. No. This isn't we are the world and no. This is something more important. Let's read it. Jesus, in his verse in 21 and 23, gives us two purpose statements. So, so that, in verse 21, he says that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that, here it comes, the world may believe that you sent me. Are you hearing it? Sound pretty important here? How about in verse 23? I and them, you and me, so that they may be perfected in unity, so they could be nice to each other. No. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. The target, the goal of both of these statements that says what our unity was for is so that we can reach a watching world with a critical message that this gospel that we believe is powerful enough to overcome a million differences between us and unite us in ways that no other thing can. They see power when they see unity. They see God's work in this unity. They see that and will believe and know not just that we like each other, but that God the Father sent the Son on a rescue mission to save our souls. That's what they'll believe. Do you want that? Then unity is a requirement. Without unity, we don't achieve this. If we are a house divided, this mission will fail. You know, 
I was just thinking, what kind of divisions are possible? You know, we read in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about a division that even happens in the middle of church. He said, there's a party spirit being generated, and you guys are dividing even because of your church leader. You're saying, I want this leader, and I want that leader. And you're dividing the church. Could that happen here? Does anybody pay attention? It happened here. We had divisions in our church for this very purpose. Is that something that's on the level of Christ and his salvation? No. This is not an essential. But if it divides us, it has just as much damage. See, in order for us to be able to impact our world, we must have this. And some of you might say, okay, I agree. I need to protect this unity that God's given us because this unity that we see even here right now was never manufactured by a man, never manufactured by a system, by a formula, by a strategy, but by the Spirit of the living God. The reason you're all here like this is because God called you to be here. And God equipped us to be unified. Not because we manufactured it. You understand, the church... And a person cannot create this godly unity. This unity that's able to join races, join nations, join tribes, join tongues, join sexes, join everything so they can function as they should. What does it? God. But you know, we are called to protect it, not produce it. Protect it. Preserve it. Don't produce it. God produces it. But what does he say? He says... You will either protect and produce it, or protect and, and, and guard it, or you will destroy it. You only have a couple choices here. Are you a destroyer, or you a protector, preserver? Because there's no middle ground. There is no middle ground here. And we will either be protecting the unity of this body, or we'll be destroying it. So, I must move on. It's convicting. Because disunity is deadly, we need to understand what is God's formula, what's God's method to protect us, to preserve it, to guard it. What should we do? What's practically? I don't come with a gun and say, I'm guarding our unity. How do you guard your unity? What do you need to be doing? What do you need to be acting like to guard unity, to preserve it, to protect it, to promote it? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Let's read it together. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, beg you, beseech you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called with all, with complete humility, gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Are you hearing him begging us? He's saying, I recognize that what's at stake. What's at stake is your ability to reach a watching world. You're not just affecting how we like each other or don't like each other. You're affecting ability of this mission that Christ left us on to succeed. Period. This is it. It all comes down to, so what do we need to do? Well, he gives us five characteristics. And I'm going to go through them really fast. Complete humility. Now, I'm sure you realize that humility is tough. And as soon as you say you have it, you don't. <laughs> um, 
it's hard for us. I said in the first service, I hate being wrong. And I'm wrong too often. What I hate more, and I said when my wife uh, finds out that, and she actually communicates to me that I'm wrong, I actually get angrier when I actually am wrong. You ever notice that? Well, if you're not wrong, you can go, hey. But when you are wrong, okay. Anyway, but it's hard to be humble. It's hard to be able to take criticism. In fact, what it says is, and we've heard it before, I think Matthew said it many times before, humility is not self-deprecating. It's not weakness. It's not talking yourself down. Instead, it's, it's really this. Instead of thinking less about myself, I think about myself less. And by extension, others more. When I start thinking about others instead of me, how they feel instead of what I feel, what they want instead of what I want, that's when humility starts being practiced. I don't have to think I'm a worm or I'm small or I'm... In, no, I might be the smart, a smart guy or a dumb guy. It doesn't matter. When I think of others, that's when I'm practicing humility. And complete humility, I think, is the point here. What he's saying here is, it's hard to say complete humility. Is that like pregnant, completely pregnant? Humility, complete humility. You either have it or you don't. You're either humble or you're not. In any situation, you're either humble or you're not. But I think it's this. When he's talking about complete humility, that means the opposite of humility is what? It's pride. It's arrogance. Self-seeking. Even a tiny bit of pride in a church body will divide it. You could be mostly humble. Good for you. The goal is completely humble. Because even a tiny bit of pride will divide. How are we doing? How are we doing? Second one, gentleness. Well, some people think that gentleness means weakness or wimpiness. No, Jesus was neither weak nor wimpy because he was called meek. The meek and lowly Jesus. But what is it? It's the notion of power under control. It's the sense of a horse, when it's been broken and tamed, that horse still retains all of its power and energy and vitality. It's just under new management. God wants all of our power and energy and vitality to be under new management, under the Holy Spirit. And that's called one of the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. See, gentleness is generally calming, right? Uh, it's tender. It's sensitive. The opposite of gentleness might be rudeness, harshness, self-assertion. Those things are enemies. So, when you walk into a room, does a gentle, self-controlled, calming peacemaker walk in? Or does a harsh, rude, always right person enter? That's the test for us. Because if we are the harsh, rude, always right person, we will divide this church. A little bit of pride will divide and non-gentleness will divide. But gentleness will promote it. You get it? The next one is patience. Patient endurance. I don't have time to develop all these things as well like I wish, but I want to say this. Patience is not just waiting. It's patiently enduring under a load that's hard. It's bearing with. 
the sense of faithfully reaching the end, seeing something through. You see, life and circumstances aren't easy, um, but patient endurance is critical to our unity. Why? Why is this a characteristic of unity? Because I think it's this. It brings unity to the body of Christ when the person next to you in the trenches knows that you are not going to cut and run if it gets hard. That you're going to stick with it. You're going to see it through the end. You're both going to serve your common Lord to the end because you're in it for the same reason, to serve Him. Not to get your way. Not because it's hard or easy. You see, when things don't go right, when things are painful, when we don't get our way, what do we do? Do we faithfully endure, demonstrating patient endurance, trying to make things better? Are we, are we or am I, am I, are you quick to give up, throw in the towel, or maybe move on to some supposedly greener pastures? If we're not patiently enduring, it will destroy the unity of this church. I think there's another one that's tolerance for love. Basically, do you tolerate one another? Are, does everybody have to be perfect in your life for you to get along with them? Are you perfect? Does anybody have to tolerate you? I am really glad my wife tolerates me. Because sometimes I am annoying. I know you find that hard to believe, but she knows it's true. I can be annoying. But, when we love one another with a forbearing love, an enduring love, a one that, that is bearing with without judgment, that someone can come and confess their sins to you and they know it's going to stay secret. They'll preserve your dignity. They won't gossip about you and they won't think less of you or avoid you in the lobby because they admitted they had a problem. This is what we need to have unity. Do you get it? Yeah. If you know that, if I tell you something about my life and how it's rough, and the next thing I know it's in the bulletin, <laughs> do you trust that place? No. You'll split. And they'll split the church. And what we know? We know that a house divided will not stand. The last one here is pursuing peace. Um, do you and I really want unity? Do we? I do. Do we want a unity that proclaims the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to a watching world? I do. It says we need to pursue peace. What do you mean pursue? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. If we truly are children of God, we're going to be peacemakers, not peace enjoyers. Does anybody like to go into a room of hostile bees or something where it's... Man, whenever I go to that environment, it's just chaos. I don't like it, right? What our job is to do is not shun it, but make peace. Try to find out a way of calming that, to, to, to spin it down, not spin it up. I think mean, we are really good in our conversational speech around the water cooler to really kind of get in each other's face and rev things up, aren't we? We're pretty good at it. Needle them about their sports team, how they're failing. <laughs> We're really making peace. No, if we are truly children of God, God says we will be peacemakers, not peace destroyers and not peace enjoyers. Peacemakers. 
Is that who walks in the room when you come in the room? Boy, they know when you walk in, it's going to calm down. Or do they know when you walk in, better put on your football helmet. If we have peacemakers, we will have unity. Well, this is a gift to us, this unity that God has given us, this ability to get together and actually have something in common that so supersedes anything that would divide us. It's incredible. The question now is, do you really want the world around you to know that God loves them and that God came to rescue them? Do you want them to know that? But Jesus says, when we live beyond our petty differences and all these millions of things that would divide us and show a world that watches us, whether it's outside these walls or in these walls, that, wow, we put up with one another. We're humble with one another. We love being around one another. We, we get things together and we get them done together. We love one another. And it's not because of how they look, what they believe, all their politics. None of those are the same. It communicates power of God to save you understand? Jesus said that they will know and they will believe that you sent me on this rescue mission, Father. You sent me, I came, I rescued the souls of men and when my people live above their differences, it will shout that to the world. Isn't that what we want? We don't, no person's going to come in this room and see a bunch of, and say, wow, I thought I had problems, but I came there and they're, they're, they're bickering about everything. That's not going to proclaim Christ. Unity proclaims Christ. And it's not something we need to treat lightly or carelessly. We don't want to be a two-year-old here with God's unity. We want to treat it with care and concern. You know, what's at stake here is that the world may believe and know that Jesus Christ is Lord and came to rescue their souls. If we let any of these petty things divide Valley Bible Church, our witness and testimony to a watching world is destroyed. I don't want that to happen. I hope you don't either. Please join me as we try to preserve the bonds of peace and our unity that we can't make but has been gifted to us in this prayer by our Heavenly Father through Jesus. Father, thank you for the gift of unity. Father, I, I rub shoulders with some of the strangest folks around that call themselves Christians because you rescued them just like me out of the mud. You pulled them from all different parts of this globe, all per parts of the, the walks of life, all different educations. Everybody has equal footing at the foot of the cross. Everyone is the same at the foot of the cross. No race, no status, no belief other than Christ matters. Help us to live that way and to actually live with these characteristics of humility. Complete humility. Of gentleness, of patience, of bearing with one another, and of peace. May that be what people say, that's what Valley Bible Church is all about. Would you change me today? Convict me today. Let me see how I can be better at not being a unity destroyer, but a unity protector and preserver. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. amen.